Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. This episode includes depictions of graphic violence and cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Please note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any one story of the Nagayer Nangalku. Today's episode combines features from a number of Aboriginal and colonial Australian legends for dramatic effect. Hello, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. Each week we search the deepest shadows of myth and legend for the strangest and the scariest creatures humanity can imagine. There are some lessons that only monsters can teach. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, we leave the rivers and billabongs of eastern Australia and head into the outback to find a very different kind of lake, a salt flat in the middle of the unforgiving desert. It may seem unassuming to an outsider, but be wary of this long, dry mineral deposit. Aboriginal Australians always quiet their steps and silence their horses' bells as they pass by. A single sound could alert the cannibals that dwell in the sand. Coming up, what happens when you make noise at Lake Disappointment? This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. If you were with me for our recent episode on the aboriginal bat monster Baliyong, you may remember the concept of the dreaming. The dreaming refers to a shared and simultaneous past, present, and future of existence. It's a space that connects Australia's indigenous people with their landscape and all living things. Time does not pass in a linear fashion in the dreaming. Legend, memory, and reality blend together. There are over 500 indigenous groups within the dreaming, and they each have their own ancestral territory. The word for these lands is often translated to English as country, as in Martu country, Wanmin country, and so on. But the word has a much deeper meaning in Aboriginal life than it does for English speakers. An indigenous person cares for their country, and their country also cares for them. Or most of the time it does. Western Australia's Kumpapinta Lake is an unusually harsh part of the continent. Lake is a slightly misleading term here. While the dreaming includes a time when Kumpapintil and the sand dunes that surrounded it held large amounts of water, it's now rare to find significant reserves in the roughly 82,000-acre basin. It's a pristine salt flat to our modern eyes. When the wind blows, the parched crystals sting your skin. Still, it's what's beneath the salt that has a sharper bite. The Martu people in the surrounding countries avoid Kumpapintil whenever possible. If they're forced to pass by, they move as quickly and quietly as they can. They're terrified of drawing the attention of the Nagair Nongalku, the beings who live below the dead lake. The Nagair Nongalku look like humans at first. Then you notice their frightening fangs and claw-like fingernails. If you draw too close to the edge of the dry lake, they drag you down to their world, a place where the sun never stops shining. But you won't get to enjoy the eternal daytime for long. In English, Nagair Nongalku means something like, they'll eat me. Will didn't understand how cows were supposed to make this trek through the desert. He was only barely managing, and at least he could remind himself of where they were going and why. His associate Clyde had made the mission sound simple. Map the Pilbara Desert and find or dig enough wells to supply a full herd of cattle when they traveled from Halls Creek to Willuna. Sure, the Crown had already commissioned someone to do it, but Clyde was confident that they'd get the credit and the payday if they beat the Queen's men to it. And he'd promised he had plenty of experience traversing these sands, he would know. That confidence had won Will over. It was why he'd agreed to be partners and pioneers in this enterprise. But things were quickly proving more complicated than Clyde had suggested. 
Digging the wells was hard work. There was only a middling chance that any given attempt would be a success, and Clyde rarely helped. He insisted that he'd already invested in their inevitable success by selling one of his prize rings. Will wasn't sure he believed him. The man still wore two on each finger. Will's frustration was growing, but it would all be worth it if they found water. Sweet, refreshing water. The last three dig spots had been duds. His precious canteen was getting lighter and lighter. He clutched it close as they walked, as if holding it tight enough would wring water from the solid metal. He asked Clyde when they would reach the next landmark. Clyde squinted into the sun as he spoke. Not long now, a few hours. Lake disappointment. He pointed across the red expanse, but Will could see nothing different. Why is it called Lake Disappointment? Clyde chuckled. Because there's no lake at all, it's just salt. Will gulped. That would make it four days they'd gone without replenishing their canteens. Another thought gnawed at him. I think I've heard of this. One of the Putajara said it was cursed. If you touch the salt, monsters will get you. The Nagayarnan Galku. Clyde scoffed. Stuff and nonsense. I'll bet there's a new trickle of water there and they want to hide it from us. Will kept his displeasure to himself. He was skeptical of monsters too, sure, but he'd never seen the wisdom in arguing with people about where they'd grown up. He wouldn't like it if someone told him he didn't know his way around Sydney. The sun was sinking low when the so-called Lake Disappointment came into view. The salt glinted in the light of the rising moon. The bite in the air gave the spot a strange feeling, as if they'd stumbled into a polar scene in the middle of the desert sands. The salt almost looked like ice at this distance, but there were no snowdrifts rising from the glistening white surface. Instead, the moon illuminated dunes of emaciated scrub brush and heavy clay, red as blood. Clyde stopped his horse and dismounted, but Will didn't move. Can we walk away from the path a little? I don't want to sleep next to that. The white light will keep me up. Clyde rolled his eyes. You are a coward, William, through and through. Will was hurt. I came out here, didn't I? I've done just as much work as you, maybe more. I need a good night's sleep. Clyde sauntered towards Will, raising a brow. You know what you need? With that, Clyde snatched Will's canteen and threw it towards the salt. It landed with an anticlimactic half-bounce, then settled on the crystalline surface. Clyde threw up his hands in triumph. See? Nothing. Now go pick it up and get a fire started. Will eyed the canteen. It was too far away to grab from the sandy edge. He would need to walk out onto the eerie white. His tongue was like sandpaper in his mouth, but he still wondered if it was best to wait until morning. As he considered this, a small shadow appeared beside the canteen. It grew and grew until four others joined it. It was a hand. A hand was reaching out of the salt. Will tugged at Clyde's sleeve. He froze. The hand became an arm. It braced against the salt and pushed. Something pulled itself out of the powdery white. It looked like a person in the low light, but it couldn't be. 
That didn't make any sense. Will looked at Clyde. Clyde looked at Will. Another shadow emerged from the salt. Another. Will wanted to ask Clyde what they should do, but Clyde was already talking. Sorry about this, old chap, but uh, you are the help. Then he punched Will so hard he fell to the dirt. Clyde ran for his horse, but the tallest figure beat him to it. The man appeared to be quite ordinary in many respects, though there was an inhuman quality to his features that Will couldn't place. He lifted Clyde up by the throat and began to walk towards the salt. Will needed to run. He struggled to his feet only to find two women behind him. They licked their lips, revealing two pairs of bloody fangs. Will made a break for it, trying to force his way past them. The women grabbed his hands so tightly he feared they would break. He pushed and pulled against their grip, but it was no use. They dragged him towards the salt like he was a rag doll. He could feel his shoulders straining, his arms stretching to their very limits. All of a sudden, the pressure released. The women flung him onto the salt. He landed heavily, feeling the air knocked out of his lungs. The dry lake was harder than he expected, solid, until he began to sink. He tried to push himself up and out of the salt, but it only swallowed him faster. He coughed and choked. It stung his eyes and nose. He could feel the breath leaving his lungs for good. The salt became seawater, crystal blue and beautiful. He was still falling. No, he was sinking into an endless blue abyss. His lungs screamed for air. Then the world went white. Coming up, the world below the salt. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. Those of you who've been with ParCast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Will blinked his tired eyes, trying to wake up. It had to have been a dream. Aboriginals didn't just climb out of the salt flats and attack people. Salt flats don't just transform into seawater. But when his vision came into focus, his heart sank. He was in a cage made of bone, in some kind of shelter. The walls were strange. Some sections were made with reeds, others wood or clay. The ceiling was impossibly high, with glass panes set into it. He'd never seen an indigenous shelter like this. But he'd also never fallen through a salt lake before. He didn't know how long he'd been asleep. The sun was high in the sky, bathing the room in a warm glow. Clyde slept in a cage beside him. Piles of scrub brush and lizard corpses were pushed up against the wall. The aroma of roasting meat and vegetables filled the air. Will squinted against the glare of the sun as he looked up to survey the sky. What he saw didn't make sense. What was this place? Clyde snapped awake in a panic. Will was relieved that they weren't in the same cage. Clyde didn't even seem to notice him. He kept calling for his jailer, saying he was a citizen of the Crown, as if that mattered. Will was quite certain they were as far from the Empire as they could get. He said, I don't think that's going to work. Clyde kept his eyes on the door as he spoke. Shut up. This is your fault. Will stared at him. My fault? Clyde finally looked at Will. Yes, you goaded me into it. Will was about to give Clyde a piece of his mind when the door to the hut opened. A group of seven people piled into the room. Their robes were bright white and glistening like the salt. The tallest one, the man from the night before, said something Will couldn't understand. Will softened his face, trying to look as friendly as possible. The man's eyes darted between Will and Clyde. He was comparing them. Clyde could just not stop talking. You, all of you, release me this instant. The man said something that Will did not understand. The two others beside him stepped forward. They inserted two keys into two identical locks at the front of Clyde's cage. The bone door swung open. Clyde stood up, trying to look dignified. Good, you've seen sense. Now why don't you take me to whoever's in charge? Will had to laugh. He almost wished these salt people could understand what Clyde was saying, but they'd heard enough to grab him roughly, dragging him out of the cage. Clyde struggled, muttered, and kept trying to negotiate, but his two captors ignored him. They carried Clyde away. The other five salt people remained, whispering to each other in excited voices. Will listened intently to their speech. He'd met a few of the local people. If he could communicate, perhaps he would have a chance. He caught one word and one word only. Nagayer non Galku. A chill ran up his spine when he remembered its meaning. Those who eat you. 
Drums echoed outside. He heard yelling and laughing. A party was starting. Will's chest was tight. How was he to reason with them when they couldn't understand each other? The shelter swam before him. He swore he could see the materials shifting, stone to reeds to wood to brick and back again. The five Nagayer Nangalku clapped each other on the back happily and headed out the door. Will sprang up, ready to search for any exit he could now that he was alone. But he wasn't alone at all. A small face peeked out at him from behind the doorframe, a little girl with a round face and owlish eyes. Will could tell the girl wanted to listen, even if she couldn't understand. He offered her a smile and a small wave. She lifted her hand to return it, fascinated. Before she could finish, a large hand pulled her out of sight. He heard her small giggles fade away into the noise from outside. Will was cautiously relieved. He'd made some headway in getting the girl on his side, and there were other steps he could take now that he was alone, like trying to open the door to his cage. Each bar was made of a femur or humerus, knitted together with something that looked far too close to tanned sinew. How many men had sat where he was, waiting to become material for a new prison? The two locks on the door were definitely carved from bone. The edge of a pelvis, it looked like, hollowed out to leave room for a rotating pin. If the pins were horizontal, the door was locked. If they were vertical, it would swing open. Will couldn't move them, so he just needed to break them. Will braced himself against the back of the cage and kicked the door with all his might. The door rattled but didn't move. Will pulled back again, aiming at the first lock. He kicked. He kicked again. A small thread-like crack appeared in the pale bone lock. He could hear the party getting rowdier. And cutting through it all was one sound. Help! Oh God, help me! Will had never heard Clyde sound so small, so desperate. He redoubled his efforts, kicking hard and fast. The lock cracked a little more. Clyde was screaming, crying. Another kick widened the crack even more. Now it was held together by only the smallest sliver of bone. Clyde's screams reached a fever pitch. So did the crowds. Will seized the lock in his hands and wrenched as hard as he could. The lock shattered. Bone shards skittered across the stone floor. Will didn't have time to celebrate. There was one more lock to go. The screaming stopped. Clyde was gone. He needed to move faster. He adjusted his positioning to go after the other lock. The girl appeared in the doorway, skipping from one foot to the other with her hands behind her back. Will paused. He lowered his hands slowly and made a sad face at her. He pointed at her, then at him, then mimed two people coming together to play. It felt ridiculous, but it was all he could think of. Her expression was unreadable. She stepped cautiously into the room. Accompanying her entrance was a quiet ticking, a sound Will couldn't quite place. He waved to the girl. She considered him. He made a goofy face. She laughed and gave an excited wiggle, her hands still behind her back. He pointed from the broken lock on the ground to the intact one still attached to the door and frowned. She bent down to examine the lock. 
Will held his breath. She reached down, and he finally saw her hands. The ticking sound hadn't been in his head. It was her claws. They might have been human fingernails long ago. Now they were curved into talons. She brought her hands together again as she considered the lock. Her claws went tick, tick, tick as they clacked against each other. She reached into her pocket with an impish grin. Will couldn't believe his luck. The girl had a key. She was going to free him. He was vibrating with joy. She brought her closed fist to his eye level and opened it slowly, absolutely beaming. It wasn't a key at all. Small bands of gold and silver told Will exactly what it was. The girl was holding Clyde's severed finger. Coming up, Will gets one last chance at freedom. Now back to the story. Will stared at the Nagair Nangalku girl. She was offering him a piece of his former business partner. He didn't know what this meant. Was it a warning, a threat, some sort of macabre gift for his role as a future sacrifice? She seemed to sense his confusion and pushed the severed finger towards the bars again. Will pulled back involuntarily. The girl's brow furrowed. He was losing her. Will rushed to the front of the cage again. He made a big show of fawning and applauding the piece of meat in the little girl's hand. She smiled, a full-toothed smile, exposing her fangs. She had small scraps of skin between her teeth. Will did his best to suppress a gag. He forced himself to match her smile. She reached through the bars with red-stained fingers and placed her hands on his face. She pressed down on his cheeks and pulled the edges of his mouth to make his smile wider. She stood back to admire her handiwork, claws clicking together as she mimicked his clapping. Clyde's blood was sour and metallic in Will's mouth. He didn't know what the girl wanted. He didn't know how to play along. The girl moved slowly, as if demonstrating something. She lifted the finger to her lips and took a small bite. She closed her eyes, clearly savoring the morsel. Then she opened them and pointed to him. She wanted him to eat Clyde. The worst thing was, Will was considering it. He didn't want to die. There was no getting out of this. Not unless he earned the Nagayer Nangalku's trust first, which meant being like them, if only for appearance's sake. He took the finger from her hand like it was a priceless treasure. He brought it to his lips with a deep inhale and exhale. Then he bit down. It wasn't as bad as he thought. He'd had crocodile back in Sydney, and Clyde's flesh was nowhere near as tough. In fact, it was quite good. He took another bite. The girl clicked her claws happily. Will couldn't believe it. He'd passed the test. Now he just needed to blend in long enough to find a way out of the cave, through the hidden seawater, and out into the salt flat. Will's gums itched. He felt a trickle of blood fall onto his tongue. He slid a finger along his teeth back to front, 
When he reached the front of his mouth, a stinging pain pricked his finger. He pulled it away to examine it. Blood, his own. He felt his teeth again. It was as he suspected. They were fangs, long, thin fangs like a snake. His heart skipped towards panic. He looked down at his hands. His nails were beginning to grow and curve. The girl clicked her claws, bouncing up and down. She pointed at him and then at her, calling, Nagayernan Galku, Nagayernan Galku. Will gave her a nervous smile. She drew a key from her robes and fitted in the remaining lock. The door swung open. Will stuck his head out tentatively. The girl grabbed his hand and pulled. He stumbled into the open on stiff legs. The shifting materials inside the shelter danced in front of him like a kaleidoscope. Stone, reeds, wood, brick, steel. Stone, reeds, wood, brick, steel. The sun inside the room was warm on his face. He felt energized, happy. The girl tugged on his hand. He didn't need to be told twice. She led him outside. It was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. A great city below the ground. Homes of all shapes and sizes jutted out from the cave wall and spread along the gleaming salt floor. There was no need for candles or torches. The sun glinted off of every pane in every ceiling. Some were blue, purple, or rich ale bottle brown. A great stone cathedral sat at the center of it all, strange arches and flying buttresses shining in the sunlight. Will blinked. It wasn't a cathedral at all. It was a tower. A tower of bones. The Nagayernan Galku danced around it. Each of their steps were unique, some fast, some slow. Some pounded their feet, others leapt high off the ground. The style of their clothes varied as wildly as their homes. Flowing purple robes billowed beside crisp white suits and strange metal armor. All of time and space had come together for this one purpose. The celebration of humanity that could only be found between the teeth and tongue. Oh, the smells, the cook fires. His mouth watered as the smell of roast meat wafted towards him. An old woman was carving thin slices of cheek meat from Clyde's severed head. The little girl held out a bowl of crisped toes. Nagayernan Galku. A tiny voice in Will's mind begged him to reconsider, to remember who he was. But Will shook it away. He hadn't had much of a life in Sydney anyway, and there was no way to survive out here other than this. Could he really be blamed for being hungry? The drive to live was what made him human, even if he wasn't entirely human anymore. The Nagayernan Galku are monstrous in terms of their behavior, abilities, and appearance, yet they're still described as cannibals, that is, people who eat their own species. This makes them different from more animalistic aboriginal monsters like the Bunyip. Their taste for humans isn't innate, it is a choice. 
In one dreaming story, the Nagayer Nangalku actually take a vote on the ethics of cannibalism. Several of them choose to abandon the practice and leave the lake. Those that remain are unapologetic. Their country doesn't care and provide for its people the way that other parts of the dreaming do. While neighboring Aboriginal groups find water in the desert by digging wells, their environment is so harsh that eating their neighbors becomes a practical form of sustenance. That's what makes the Nagayer Nangalku so terrifying. They aren't that different from us. Sure, they have razor-sharp fangs, cruel claws, and burst out of the salt like zombies, but they're only trying to survive. It's just, when your country is as barren as theirs, becoming a monster is necessary to survive. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with another Aboriginal monster. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jen Riche, with writing assistance by Robert Teamstra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. Exciting news, ParCast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before details which haven't even been explored in our cults podcast visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them